Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Many native languages are at a critical state, with fewer and fewer fluent speakers left, such as Colville tribes and citizen Potawatomi Nation, where only a handful of fluent-speaking elders remain. Some practitioners are revitalizing their languages in classrooms, and they're seeing growth in language learners through college courses and immersion schools. We'll talk with language teachers about the efforts and challenges of teaching language in the classroom. That's right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. President Joe Biden took to the Rose Garden last week to celebrate his conservation achievements and number one on his list, blocking the Pebble Mine. That's a proposed open pit gold mine upstream from Alaska's Bristol Bay. The sockeye salmon fishery there is central to the economy and tribal culture. Alaska Public Media Washington correspondent Liz Ruskin reports. <laughs> Distinguished guests, the President of the United States, accompanied by Alana Hurley. That's United Tribes of Bristol Bay Executive Director Alana Hurley, who has been fighting the pebble mine her whole adult life. She was invited to Washington, D.C. to introduce the president. In a blue print cusbook, she spoke of how her salmon-centered community has lived with a threat looming for 20 years. But our people stood up and fought back to protect what we hold sacred. President Biden heard our voices. In the end, we used our authority under the Clean Water Act to ban the disposal of mine waste in Bristol Bay watershed, period. That, me that means the mine will not be built. Biden spoke of the mine as dead. Hurley says mine opponents are still seeking an act of Congress to protect the entire watershed from mining. About a dozen Bristol Bay kids were at the White House for the ceremony, and Hurley says it was a day to relish the win. This is everything our people have been fighting for, to make sure that our children will know who they are and will be able to continue to be Native people in Bristol Bay for generations to come. And so to see our kids with the president today celebrating this monumental historic victory for us was, was just profound. Pebble is appealing the Army Corps of Engineers' decision denying its permit. The larger problem for the company is that the Environmental Protection Agency has essentially vetoed any plan to use the site for rock disposal. Appealing that decision could last years. Reporting from Washington, I'm Liz Ruskin. A former official of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara nations in North Dakota was sentenced Monday to five years in prison for soliciting and accepting bribes and kickbacks from a construction contractor, according to the U.S. Justice Department. Court records show Randall Phelan, who was on the Tribal Council, was involved in the scheme from 2013 to 2020, and that in exchange, he used his political position to award the contractor business. He said to have received more than $645,000. He pleaded guilty in 2022. 
After a pandemic hiatus of several years, a major Native American cultural event is coming back to Oregon State University. KLCC's Brian Bull reports. All of our color guard are all veterans. Here we are, Eagle staff, and our flags in great honor. The last time dancers and drummers gathered inside OSU's Gill Coliseum for the Slotawa Ina Powwow was 2019. After COVID-19 hit Oregon, organizers postponed it to keep people safe. Lahui Whitebear is an assistant professor of Indigenous Studies at OSU who's helped organize the event. She says it was a tough decision. It was hard because the students really wanted to get that experience helping organize a powwow. This is a big part of being able to express yourself on a college campus for students and to share culture with the local community. With COVID rates decreasing due to pandemic measures and vaccinations, organizers say the 44th annual Slotawa Ina Powwow is back this Saturday. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. Citizen Potawatomi Nation offers language courses at four colleges. The courses are the latest efforts toward language revitalization. The tribe estimates they are down to four fluent speakers. Colville Salish has a similar number of fluent speakers. A nonprofit called the Salish Immersion School is one of the ways language advocates hope to improve those statistics, and they say they're seeing some gains. School administrators are now helping other Native communities that have endangered languages. Today we'll speak with native language teachers about the challenges and successes made with teaching language in the classroom. Please join the conversation. How do people in your tribe learn your language? In a school, a continuing education course, or maybe they learn it at home. Call us at 1-800-996-2848 to share your insights. You can also post on our social media. Speaking with us now in Shawnee, Oklahoma is Robert Collins. He is the Potawatomi language professor at the Citizen Potawatomi Nation Cultural Heritage Center. He is Citizen Potawatomi. Robert, welcome to the show. Yeah, bonjour. Happy to be here. Bonjour. And speaking with us from Spokane, Washington, is Lorraine Wiley. She is the executive director of Salish School of Spokane. She is Sinaixt Arrow Lakes Band. Lorraine, thanks for joining us. Why can meet Kinala? I'm glad to be here today. Great to have you as well, Larray. Also joining us from Spokane, Washington, is Christopher Parkin. He is the Salish School of Spokane principal. Chris, welcome. Why? Good morning. 
Good morning to you as well. And also joining us today is Dr. Lance Twitchell. He is a professor of Alaska Native Languages at the University of Alaska Southeast. He is Singit, Haida, Yupik, and Sami. Lance, welcome back to Native America Calling. You've been here before. Please feel free to further introduce yourself. Uh, so wonderful to be with you folks here today. I'm looking forward to this uh, conversation. Well, I am too, absolutely. And let's go ahead and start today with Robert Collins. Again, he's there in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Robert, Citizen Potawatomi offers a free language college course. How did that come about? Uh, yeah, so um, there was a little misunderstanding there. Yeah, so it's the colleges do charge for the course. We, uh, on the other hand, do not charge the college, colleges for the um, for the language course. So in 2021, we received a grant from the administration for Native American Emergency Native Language uh, from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services for children and families. And um, myself and our wonderful folks down at the CPN Education Department teamed up and began building a course for our college students. All right, so well, tell us more about the course. How was it actually developed? How long did it take? And what are all the working parts? How does it actually function? Uh, yeah, so um, it's basically structured in the uh, Potawatomi worldview, um, using our medicine wheel, you know, for our directions, our colors. And uh, we create interactive video lessons where the students are required to interact with um, those lectures. Videos, uh, sounds like a lot of rich media content. Are there also in-person courses or is it most of it remote? Uh, yeah, it, it's all remote. I'm just, I have just office hours so I can answer any questions that the students might have. All righty. Well, how many people are currently enrolled in the course? Um, we're not going to start enrolling them back again until the fall of 23. Okay. So right now we're building a Potawatomi 2. So we start out with Potawatomi 1 in the fall of 22. And um, we've taken this, this spring here to build for spring of 23. All righty. So how many uh, students did you have for Potawatomi number one then? So we started out with seven, and with course drops, we ended up, we closed out with four. We made it just there on the cusp of enrollment, um, with, which one student is good for me, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, how many fluent languages, uh, or excuse me, how many fluent language speakers are there in the tribe right now? So for the... Citizen Potawatomi Band, um, we have one, I believe. Um, throughout uh, all nine bands, I believe there's maybe four. Wow. One person and then four with all the bands combined. And, well, tell us more. I mean, what what do you hope to accomplish with this course? And, and even so far, just with this first cohort that already completed the course, the four students, uh, how much progress did they make? And how optimistic are you that you're going to be able to produce a significant number of speakers going forward. Yes, yeah, so um, our goal wasn't out to make fluency. Our goal is to just get the culture and the language out there so our students can get credit for taking like a foreign language course in their institution. And with that, our final assignments for Potawatomi One was to write a children's book so they can contribute to the language revitalization directly. And um, our future learners would be able to use those and we had pretty pretty well success with that. 
Okay. Now, this one fluent speaker that you mentioned, is that person involved in the program? Um, no. And um, how, how large is the tribe? I, help me out here. How many members total are there? Somewhere around 38,000 citizen Potawatomi Nation members. 38,000. Okay, so a, a large, large tribe for sure. Um, so the next uh, course offering will begin fall of 23. So that's coming up here in just a few more months. And then what's the plan after that? Will you just continue to progress this group along with like a number three and a number four? Or will you start with a new number, a new group at, at number one again? Um, hopefully, you know, that would be a, a great goal to achieve there. We haven't yet set that in, in writing anywhere. It's, we have uh, partnerships with six universities, um, one being East Central University, Rose State College, Oklahoma City Community College, uh, Kansas State, University of Oklahoma, University of Central Oklahoma. Okay. And Robert, what do you think is the biggest challenge? I mean, you mentioned uh, well over 30,000 members and yet only seven enrolled in the course of over 30,000 people. What, what is it? What's, what's the challenge of just getting people to, to want to learn the language there? If we could create time, I guess it would be, um, it would be great for us. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very challenging. It, what, I mean, what do, what do people say? Is it, is it too hard? Is, is it a time constraint? They've just got so many competing priorities? Or, or uh, you know, when, when you talk to people and you go out there and you, and you, and you try and promote the course, what, what's the feedback you get? Uh, yeah, so it, the challenge is the repetition. You know, people aren't into doing the repetition, and it is challenging, you know, because um, the concepts of the language are foreign to them. Right, yeah, I could imagine. Well, Robert, thank you so much. Please stay on the line, and, um, you know, I'm going to come back to you and ask you some more questions, but I'm going to go ahead and move along to Larray now. And, Larray, tell us uh, more about the Salish School of Spokane and what efforts uh, the school has made towards bringing back the Colville Salish language. Yeah, well, I'm really glad to be here today, and thank you for having us. Um, our school started off in, um, it was started by five Colville women, and we got together and we decided, we'd been working on language, we decided we wanted our children, and, and a few of us were grandmas, some of us were mothers, and we decided we wanted our children to learn the language. And so we started our school just as a childcare in, in a home that we rented, and then each year it's kind of grown and grown and grown. And um, this year we have 33 students at Sailor School of Spokane from uh, three years old to grade six. So, about, you know, 11, 12 year olds. Um, okay. And we also do a lot of um, adult education because our language is highly endangered with only a handful of speakers. And so, we um, teach our teachers the language. So none of us grew up speaking the language. So teachers, te uh, they learn the language in addition to the students. And, and, and you folks started young. I mean, you mentioned just, just young, young children. Uh, do you think it's more impactful when you're able to teach a language to a, a young person like that as opposed to an adult, somebody who already knows another language? Um, you know, I, I, I've heard that, but from my experience, adults are easier to teach just because they already have learned the language before, and they also have uh, reading skills, and so it's, it's easier for adults to 
I think the, 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 most, the struggle for adults is their own um, sense of themselves and, like, there's an effective barrier there for them learning, you know, um, whereas kids, they just repeat and learn, you know. Mm-hmm. I think adults are, are better language learners once you get past the effective barrier. Now, what was the state of the, the Colville Salish language when you started the school? I mean, you mentioned four, four fluent speakers roughly, but um, with regard other other folks, I mean, was there was the language spoken at all outside of those that small select group of people? Um, no, the language. I mean, when we first started, there were more speakers, and um, but as time has gone on, of course, like every other nation, we're you know losing our our speakers and so um by the time we started the school um a lot of our elders had left us and and we were um working with one elder primarily from canada who speaks our language and and we developed a system with her to teach our language to adults well Ray, uh i'm sorry to hear that that uh you know so many of these elders this cultural knowledge has been lost but it sounds like you folks are are really passionate uh, about uh these programs that you're operating there uh currently 33 students enrolled grades up to sixth grade age three up to sixth grade and then adult uh, learning programs as well so we're gonna have to take a short break but uh when we come back i, I want to learn more uh, about the Sailor School of Spokane, and I uh, also want to talk with Christopher Parkin, your school principal as well. But before we do that, we do have to take a short break. So anybody would like to chime in on our conversation today, talk a little bit about native languages, how you learned your language if you speak it. I'd sure like to hear your story as well. 1-800-996-2848. Give us a call. Boarding school records hold vital information for families seeking answers and healing for their ancestors. But those records are often scattered, disorganized, or otherwise hard to find. A number of organizations are digitizing records to make them more accessible. We'll discuss it on the next Native America Calling. Services. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're discussing how classrooms are helping language revitalization. If you want to talk about how your tribe is revitalizing their language or your own experience learning a native language, then dial 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line now is Larray Wiley. She's the executive director of Salish School of Spokane. Lorraine, how many uh, dialects of the uh, Salish language are there? Well, there are about 29, I think about 29 dialects, but 
in our area, the interior Salish people, there are four languages, the Colville language, the um, Moses Columbia language, the Coeur d'Alene language, the Kalispell language, and the Spokane language. So those are the interior Salish languages. Now, are those interior languages, are they close in similarity enough that you can kind of condense them into this course? Or is this, uh, the programs that you offer specifically focus on, on Colville Salish? Yeah, the, the, the specific programs we offer are in Colville Salish. But once you know, all of the other languages are kind of like Salish uh, sister languages. So once you know uh, some of our language, you can kind of get the gist of what's going on, not word for word, but um, you can kind of get the gist of what's happening. All righty. Well, I'd like to bring Christopher Parkin into the conversation now. Again, he is the, the principal there at Salish School of Spokane. And Chris, tell us more about the, the system uh, that the school uses to teach community members the Colville Salish language. Oops. I'll go back so, to Chris. Oh, here we go. Hi, Chris. Am I there now? Yeah, yeah. You're loud and clear, Chris. Wonderful. Yeah, I was just saying, as Ray pointed out, um, we just have a critically endangered language. We have the Colville tribes has a membership of about 10,000 people. And among all of those tribal members, there are maybe three fluent speakers of Colville Salish in the United States. We're lucky to have some uh, speakers of our language in British Columbia in the Okanagan Valley, another 20 or 30 speakers. Uh, but for us, uh, the last speaker passed from our family, um, you know, 30 years ago. Um, so with a critically endangered language like ours, um, before we can do immersion schooling, before we can really get on a path to language revitalization, um, we had to build a fluency transfer system. So um, we were very fortunate. We were invited to live with our elder teacher, Sam Titsa. We lived with her in Canada full-time in 2005, 2006, and another year part-time. And working with Sam Titsa, we began making audio recordings of the language. But we did that in a systematic way so that the recordings would be accessible to a beginning learner and that they would then advance, uh, continuing to get more and more sophisticated with more and more information and subtlety of the language until it reached the very highest levels of grammar and cultural expression. Um, and in that way, we, we kind of built a path of fluency for ourselves, Lorraine. I, if, you, if you didn't get it yet, I'm married to my boss, the executive director. <laughs> and so we... <laughs> I have a 24-7, 365 boss. Spoiler alert. Uh, we were able there. to live with Sam Tietze. We lived with Sam Tietze and began building out that fluency transfer system based on audio recordings of that uh, elder, fluent, first language speaker. Um, and then doing cultural immersion with her, making the recordings, and then um, being careful about those recordings and making them into a sequential system. Um, and it ends up being a path forward that um, we are now able to teach those materials from Samtitsa in an immersion setting um, to adults. And it's that ability to train new, advanced, fluent-speaking adults of our language that has made it possible for us to have an immersion school and to actually pursue language revitalization in our community. 
So we have 33 children in our school, age three up to sixth grade, um, but we actually are teaching 60 adults. So more than uh, almost double the amount of adults, we have 20 staff during the day. Every person who works at SEO School of Spokane goes to language training class as part of their job. Whether you're a cook or the accountant or a teacher's helper, we're all in language class every day, advancing our fluency using immersion teaching in, uh, methods along with the material that we recorded with Sam Tietze. Mm-hmm. And so, that, I mean, that's very much for critically endangered language communities. We have to focus on creating new, advanced, fluent adult speakers. And it's those adults who can then raise their kids up in the language again or uh, help form immersion schools and drive other efforts for community language revitalization. Okay. Now, I understand that um, there, it's not just language. I mean, you teach science, you teach math, all in the Colville Salish language. Tell us uh, how those courses work. Well, I mean, and again, the reason we're able to do that as a critically endangered language community is because we have this way of teaching adult speakers. So when Lorraine and the other women founded the school, it was very small, six students back in September of 2010. Um, But then just growing year by year, using the materials from from Samtitsa to teach teachers and teach parents, and then those teachers and parents turning around and speaking to the kids only in our language. So we're a true immersion school. We teach math, science, literacy, um, music, art, PE. We do everything, and our teachers are speaking to the children in the language. Um, we're, we're, we're amazed when we started teaching pre-algebra in in Insochtin, Colville Salish, it was just, um, it was amazing what the kids could do, grounded in their own language and their own culture, um, with just strong teacher support. So they're doing pre-algebra in our language. They're mm-hmm. learning to read and write, and write poetry in our language. Um, and they do lots of field work, restoring the river, working with the river keeper, but all in the language, learning about these natural processes and, and working to heal our land, all in our language. Fascinating. Now, I'm familiar with some other immersion language schools, and they're similar to yours in that they end at about sixth grade, like around middle school. So what is the plan then for these students after they matriculate out of sixth grade? Is there plans for an immersion middle school and high school program, or how do they keep sustaining the language when they're no longer able to go to the immersion school? Yeah, it's a big commitment by families. In order for families to have their children at our school, the parents have to agree to be language learners. And we do have parents making that commitment. So this year we're going to sixth grade. Next year we're going to seventh grade. And uh, the year after we're going to go to eighth grade, and presumably the year after we're going to go to ninth grade. Easier said than done. We have to make a lot more science curriculum, a lot more books in our language. Um, and we, of course, have to find the funding to keep ourselves going. We're an independent nonprofit, so we don't have any regular tribal or governmental funding. We're just writing grants and soliciting donations. But um, if we can keep it going, if we can find people who are willing to learn the language, adults who are willing to come and serve in the school. Uh, we have some parents here whose kids are in fourth, fifth grade, and they are talking about they don't want their kid to go to another school. They want it to be a sailor school right up through high school. Um, in past years, we had a secondary program, 
that went through high school. It was a bilingual program, so it was about half in Salish and half in English, just because we didn't have the materials to teach calculus or chemistry in our language. Um, we had to close that program just because of the difficulties during COVID. But uh, we have some parents now talking about it, some of our staff saying we need to go all the way. Our kids really, really prosper when they are grounded in their own language, in their own tradition, where they have high levels of community support. The joke is that nobody has a teacher here. They all just have an auntie and an uncle. <laughs> and so they're really looking out for each other, really families taking care of one another. That's another important part of language revitalization work. We build a fluency transfer system. We teach each other, but then we also have to take care of each other and, and keep everybody in the game working on the language. Well, Chris and Lurie, this sounds really, really promising for sure. Let's go ahead and go to the phones now. We have Chanupa, who's listening on Keeley up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, Sean. Thank you for having me on. And uh, uh, for the young lady that said that she, her and her uh, people got together and they got a house to formulate the way they uh, taught education, here on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, we started with one total immersion, you know, educational school, one total immersion one. Now we got three. But here's the catch. Education will always prevail if our elders are brought into the midst of the educational field. Like we say, we have two of them, the late John around him, and we have Randall Lacebad and his brother Gary that taught at Our Lady of the Lord's Catholic school here on Pine Ridge. And they would warn their children up for when they came into a, the class the next day for the subject that was going to be presented. That was the beautiful piece that those brothers did. They've learned that from home and also how Uncle John around him, the late John around him did that. Also, kids would be more or less positive and professionally inclined with that when grandma and grandpa do the education. Thank you, Sean, and thank you to the sister that used her money to create that little immersion house. Thank you, Wopala. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Chanupa, very much for calling in. Appreciate that call. And uh, Lorray, our caller, Chanupa, mentions, you know, the significance and the importance of bringing elders uh, into these projects. So I know you mentioned that there are not a, a lot of fluent speakers there of the Colville Salish language, but are you able to, to bring in some elders to share some of that cultural heritage and knowledge with the students? You know, um, I, I feel so happy that that caller has have those resources and they are so blessed. Um, we really we don't have a lot of um, elders who um, can come into the class. Who can come? Like um, Chris was saying, most of our fluent speakers are in Canada, which is about four hours away from our school. So we do the best we can with regional gatherings and powwows, and we do a celebrating Salish conference here every spring. And of course, um, we you know try and use everything we can to get our kids out on the land and be uh, living our culture as well as um, in our language. Sure, sure. 
Let's go back to the phones. We've got Clifton, who is listening on KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hi, Clifton. Hello. Hey, uh, I am. I, I speak a couple of languages. They're not very different from each other. But I was reading in Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall Kimmerer talked about how when she was trying to learn, I believe it was Chippewa, that she discovered that there were very few nouns and that most things were actually described, and I may have misunderstood, but that a river was not described using a noun for river, but rather a verb for the state of riverness. And so I was hoping that uh, the folks could talk about how important these linguistic elements are to the way we think and philosophize and interact with uh, the earth and so forth. Thank you. Thank you, Clifton. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and let Robert feel that when he, Robert, it seems like Clifton raises a, a really good point. You know, as, as somebody like myself, uh, you know, who learned English as my first language, you know, we think of nouns and adjectives and verbs, and we have a very clear idea of, of how those are used when we speak and in sentences. But uh, I mean, when it comes to some of these native languages, that can just be completely different with regard to how things are described. So he mentions in this in some languages, like very few nouns. Uh, are there parallels there with the uh, the Potawatomi languages that you folks are working on? Uh, yeah, there are those parallels there. Yeah, so um, our language is descriptive. Um, and I'll quote uh, Carla Collins, one of my teachers there. So she says it's like painting a picture. Um, our language is very verb heavy. And we take our verbs and then we um, we can create nouns out of those verbs. That's interesting, like painting a picture. It, I, you know, I remember my grandma used to always tell me, she'd say that, she would say the reason people have such a hard time is she would just say speaking in Indian. That's how she would talk. She'd say, you know, you speak Indian. That's how we say it in Indian. And she would say the reason people have a hard time speaking in Indian is because they think it's a way to talk when really it's a way to think. That's that's what she used to always tell me. Does that does that make sense at all, Robert? Yeah, that does. And that's so, and so you know, we have different levels of fluency. And so when I wake up in the morning, and that's what I the way I think, that's when I'll be as fluent as I want to be. You know, that's where I'm trying to get myself as a learner myself. Mm. Fascinating, fascinating. And do you speak the language at home with your family, Robert? Uh, yeah, I have um, one son, and I I try to you know throw a little language there with him, and then he'll translate um, some language to my mom. You know, if he's with her, you know, when I message her and stuff like that. You know, so it's more or less like the 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 younger or the younger pe- folks are sharing their knowledge with the older folks. Wonderful, wonderful. And how old is he? And is he enjoying learning it? Do you see him just continuing to speak the language his whole life? Uh, he's fourteen, and um, he's at that age, you know. But in, in a lot of our learners are afraid to make mistakes, and that's one of our issues that we just have to overcome, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, Larray, I want to ask you, because I, I know your hub is on the line here as well, and uh, do you folks have children, and do you speak the language at home, Colville? No, yeah, I have. we have five grandchildren, and um, I've never spoken um, English to my grandkids, and same with Chris. We kind of made a promise to not speak uh, English to our grandkids, and so... That's been something that we've been carrying on and we do at home. And then it's easy at the school to stay in the language because 
it's our job. <laughs> We're there all day. So. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm just I'm curious. Like, okay, so you say that they 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 cannot speak English. So what happens? Because I would imagine every once in a while they slip and they do want to speak. And do you just ignore them or do you correct them? How do you get them to just go out of the English mode and go back into speaking uh, Colville Salish? Um, well, one of the things that one of our uh, most fluent teachers does is is he will just say steam what steam and then they'll <laughs> switch because they want to be understood in the you know and so then they'll switch into in Sochin, our language so that's that's a good tactic okay yeah that sounds like it just well i can't really understand you guys got to change it up here i need to hear the native language uh, i'm really enjoying mm -hmm. this conversation today with our guests and uh we're going to have to take another break here, just a short one. Would sure like another call for somebody who has some thoughts on how to learn a native language or your experience uh, with your own native language, maybe something that your grandparents or your parents used to tell you. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's our number. And when we come back, we will be speaking with Dr. Lance Twitchell, professor of Alaska Native Languages at the University of Alaska Southeast. And, uh, Boy, Lance has a lot to share. He's been doing language revitalization for a long time. So he's back on the other side of this break. Challenges to societal harmony abound. Trauma, depression, addiction. In Native communities, these challenges affect nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers to address the needs of Native communities. You can be part of the solution as a peer support worker, community health worker, or a counselor with culturally relevant training from the Native American Social Work Studies Institute. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. Please join our conversation around language revitalization in the classroom. You can call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also continue today's conversation by posting on any of our social media pages. Search for Native America Calling on Facebook or Instagram. And with that, I'd like to bring back uh, Dr. Lance Twitchell into our conversation, Professor of Alaska Native Languages. And Lance, tell us, uh, what are the major efforts aimed at revitalizing Native languages in Alaska? Yeah, uh, I just want to say, I just, I have a lot of admiration for folks who are doing this work and trying to keep ancestral languages, not just alive, but bring them to a safe place. So it, it's so wonderful to listen to what's going on with the Potawatomi language, and with uh, the Salish language, and, and just these different efforts. We do a lot of work with Chris and Lorray. Uh, and so this is just fabulous to hear. So with, with Singit, we have probably about 250 people who can speak it at some level, but um, I've heard people talk about being fluent a couple times, but I prefer the word fluency as to fluent because I think when we talk about fluent, uh, it just becomes like another identity barrier. Like you got to have your your BIA card and you got to have your other card and now you got to have your fluent card. Mm -hmm. So I like to look at fluency as sort of a 10-point scale and just say, let's try and get people up to 10 and let's try to really 
demystify the process. Let's really encourage people to keep going because most of our learners, they just stay between like a one and a three, you know, which for me means they haven't moved beyond memorization. And so once you start trying to do things in the language to sort of say things that are new that you haven't said before or to understand things that you haven't heard before, then, you know, that's where we really want to push folks. And so we have a program at the university. Uh, we teach uh, beginning, intermediate, and advanced, which are all uh, one-year sequences. So there's two parts to each one. We have a number of different language programs throughout our region, such so as uh, much like many of our uh, relatives, we are both in the United States and Canada because you know colonizer comes and divides our land. Uh, but we have a lot of programs in schools. Then we have uh, one language nest, which is a, a full uh, language medium environment. And then we're trying to develop a plan where we have a K through 12 language medium school around that a K through 12 dual language school, and then around that uh, K through 12 English medium schools that teach our language. So we're sort of uh, in the early stages of that plan, and we're finding that we're able to make speakers, we're able to use the language, uh, and we're trying to navigate the continual traumas of colonization, which are historical and current, and to try and keep everybody healthy. Mm -hmm. Well, Lance, it sounds like uh, a lot of components uh, to these programs that you described, different types of classes. What languages in Alaska are most endangered right now? Well, we have 23 known languages in Alaska. Uh, I would say two of them, possibly three, are no longer spoken on a daily basis. Uh, and then I would say you have about 10 of them that probably have 20 or fewer speakers. And then you have about five of them, or maybe, I guess, eight that have uh, 100 or fewer speakers. And then you have uh, two that have uh, probably more than 1,000 speakers, or three that have more than 1,000 speakers, with the safest of them being uh, Yupik and St. Lawrence Island Yupik. And so outside of those two, though, they're all endangered. Uh, and then they get to critically endangered where there's perhaps fewer than 10. Okay. And those two languages that have over a thousand speakers, it sounds like they're thriving. So why do you think that is? Why are some of these languages doing, enduring so much better than others? Is it because of just geography or political issues? What's your take on that? It's, it's probably a combination of the two. And so if you go to, uh, their region, it was harder to extract some of the natural resources. And so the colonizing forces didn't really settle as clearly in those areas. And so wherever there was strong settlements of American colonizers, you generally had very strong efforts to uh, extinguish everything that was indigenous. And so there was a lot of, a lot more genocidal activity in the other parts of it. In Western Alaska, there certainly was, but not as much. And then also, I think, related to this is Alaska was divided into religions who governed Alaska for probably 30 years. And those, those religions had various tolerance levels. 
of indigenous languages. And so some of them were translating uh, materials back and forth, where others were just outright banishing the indigenous mm-hmm. languages. And Lance, these languages that are endangered, uh, how involved are, are the tribal governments of those languages in these revitalization efforts? Yeah, they are highly involved. So Alaska, uh, well, I guess first I'd say right up front, like I, I really am wishing that we can have an awful lot of unity across North America for language revitalization so that we feel like we're all part of like the central entity that has a common goal of indigenizing and strengthening everything. Uh, And so we, in Alaska, we have tribes, then we have Alaska Native uh, Settlement Claims Act corporations or ANCSA corporations. Then many of those corporations have formed heritage nonprofits. And so we have this, it, it depends on the region and the community, but usually you have a combination of those three and in some instances, uh, schools, and then you have um, these sort of things that are working together. And some of them are putting some of their land claim settlement money directly into language revitalization and also funding that they are making by running businesses. And then you have tribes who are and heritage nonprofits who are largely just writing federal grants, and those federal grants are paying for activities. And then trying to sort of figure out, like, what are the other elements? And so some of the things that we've been exploring with some of our community partners are, what if everybody paid just a little bit more uh, tax on their property tax? And and that funding went into language and cultural revitalization as and also land back initiatives. And so trying to sort of spread this responsibility around because as one of our elders, Teotu'i uh, Sherman Davis said, he said, we didn't choose this path so why are we the only ones who are working to get ourselves out of this situation? Mm. Yeah, really good point. Good point. Let's go back to the phones. We've got Junior, who is listening up in Alaska on station KYUK. Hi, Junior. Hi. Good morning. <clears throat> Hi, Junior. What's on your mind? Hi. Um I just heard that person, previous caller or something, that they're going to try introducing their languages into their school, K-12. That interested parents, parents that really want to teach their children their native language, it really starts at home at a very, very young age, mm. at infant age they're if they really 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 want to pursue their children to have fluent language in their tribes that it starts at home at a very young age i just want to bring that out that they should start having pamphlets or booklets for little infants of Yupik, their traditional languages, wherever they come from. Okay. It starts at home at a very, very young age. I just want to bring that out. Thank you very much. You have a good morning. Well, thank you, Junior. I really appreciate that call. And and Lance, I want to have you expound on that because Junior mentions the importance of, of children learning the language very young. And 
you know, that's something I heard growing up. People would tell me, you know, if you don't, if, if you don't grow up speaking it, if you didn't learn it at home, you're never going to really learn it the right way. People would say things like that. And that was something that's always kind of discouraged me from, from learning uh, Keras, which is the language spoken at Laguna Pueblo. Um, what's your thought on that with regard to, you know, people that just say, hey, you know, start them younger and that's the best way. Yeah, well, I, I think we're always trying to listen for things that can improve us. You know, so for uh, folks to learn as adults, one of the things that they have to overcome is, I think that uh, Dr. William Wilson, who we call Pila, calls it overcoming the psychology of youth. And so sometimes it, you know, and that's a complex area because I think one is you don't want to sound silly and you don't want to sound like you don't know what you're doing. And I think that's a very American English type of thing is you're always supposed to sound smart, right? And so I think people have a hard time not sounding smart, and they, they have a hard time dealing with making mistakes and not knowing what they're doing. And, and it can get more complicated if a six-year-old can speak better than you can, right? But hopefully that six-year-old is uh, what Larry Kimura calls um, – who's also, those two are from Hawaii, that he would say, let the children be the yeast. And so if children are learning from birth, it's a different process where I think if you thought of fluency as a, you know, a grid going upwards and time as a grid going sideways, they tend to take off pretty fast and then level out. And then they start to get really kind of confused with grammar and other things as they start to formulate how the language works and they have English competing. Whereas adults, they tend to take off slower, but then if they can really stick with it, then they, they have a takeoff point where they go up exponentially because they're ready to sort of assemble an entire grammar in their mind. But it's a decolonial process, and so that process does require a lot at the individual level. And what I, one of my theories is that you have to be okay being more than just one thing or the other. You have to be able to live in this middle zone. And so we have uh, some folks who have some gender fluidity. I think they might have an easier time because they've already dealt with identity issues of not being just fluent or not fluent or indigenous or not indigenous or male or not male, right? And so as they look at these things, one of the things I think we have to do is, yes, we must have the language in the home and we must speak it with kids and we must re either maintain that or bring it back. But we also have to create a place where we are so proud of our adults for just giving it a shot and just say, whoa, I, I understood what you were saying. That's incredible. And focus on communication instead of perfection. Because I do think this idea of perfection is sort of an extension of the boarding school mentality, which is if you can't do it right, you better not do it at all. And I don't think that's the way we teach children. I don't think that's the way we raise children. And so it's but it's interesting to treat adults as children, too, because we don't want to uh, offend anyone. But at the same time, we want them to be nurtured and nurtured into a high fluency. All righty. Well, Lance, earlier when you mentioned you prefer the term fluency as opposed to fluent, and you mentioned how, you know, it becomes kind of this this way to measure people, right? And and I think as a lot of Native people can can relate to that because even amongst in communities, you know, there's definitely a stigma attached to not being able to speak a language versus having fluency and such. And, 
and you mentioned how that might perhaps tie into colonization and some of these others. So there's, I mean, this is a, a, a really challenging topic in many ways, and it's, uh, it's very complex for sure. So really appreciate you breaking that down for us. And Lance, I also want to ask you, I, I know that a language bill recently passed uh, the Alaska House of Representatives. Can you detail what's in that bill and its importance? Yeah, so we have uh, a council statewide called the Alaska Native Language Preservation and Advisory Council, and we exist to really look at what's going on in Alaska, talk about Alaska Native languages, and give advice to the state legislature and the governor on what kinds of things can change in order to guarantee a brighter future for Alaska Native languages. And so one of the things that we've done is try to change our name from the Alaska Native Language Preservation and Advisory Council to the Council of Alaska Native Languages. It's just a lot more straightforward and we're also not interested. We're, preservation is one part of what we do, but that's sort of like documenting folks and dealing with archives. But I think revitalization and reclamation is another part of what we do. And so we wanna be more encompassing with those types of things. We also wanna add a couple more members and we wanna add three three languages to our official languages list. And so some of the things that we're also talking about at the state level is saying, well, what would happen if we said one semester or perhaps one year of studying an Alaska native language is a requirement for high school graduation all throughout Alaska for public schools? And so we're trying to sort of adopt a mentality that we were forced to give something up so we are going to give people opportunities to help us in that reclamation. And we see this as a way of sharing both the knowledge that we have, the wonderful treasures that are within our languages, but also sharing the responsibility of the life and health of our languages. And also moving away from the idea that English is the default and everything mm -hmm. else is an option. That's really interesting, and, and I imagine a lot of it has to do with how it's framed, because if it's viewed as, as, as sharing this as opposed to, hey, you owe us this, you owe us this, <laughs> this opportunity, as opposed to sharing, it's going to create different perspectives. So anyway, this has been a really, really insightful conversation. We're going to have to wrap it up now, but I want to thank all of our guests today, Larray Wiley, Christopher Parkin, Robert Collins, and of course, Dr. Lance Twitchell, for sharing their insights on language revitalization efforts. Join us on Native America Calling again tomorrow as we take a look at digitizing records to help increase awareness and healing, especially about past boarding school experiences. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Smoking gave me COPD, which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe. I have a tip for you. If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to them that your grandpa's not going to be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Visit go.cms.gov slash women 
Healthcare Checklist o Nakairoc Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.